Hey, good morning. Am I on? Good. Um, I've got some preliminaries before my teaching time starts, so don't start the clock yet. Uh, exciting times. Uh, after a relatively short but uh, fairly difficult labor, Jonas Lachlan Harrington was born Friday evening, and we're all excited about that at the Benson household. Yeah. I'm sure everybody already knew that if you're on one of those media things. Uh, but, uh, you know, you've got to announce it in church. That's the official thing to do. he got uh, surprisingly red hair. Can you, who'd have thunk, you know? But it's uh, a good thing. also wanted to say, just to reiterate something uh, that, that Larry went over, on the, the survey for Sunday school, I think it's the green one, is that right? Purple, purple, the purple one. You know, really important, you know, because of our space limitations here, we're trying to figure out the best way to do this. And there's going to be some changes in Sunday school. We're not sure how that's all going to work out. We've got a plan to start on the 13th. But beyond that, we want some more guidance. What you can tell us will really be helpful for that. So if you've actually participated, not perfectly, but relatively consistently in a Sunday school, you can evaluate or rate that. Okay? Does that make sense? Uh, we, that's what we'd like, that feedback. Also, you know, we always appreciate your feedback on our messages and anything else. So if you would like to, we'd like all of you to turn the paper around and write anything that you think is important about our messages, about the church or whatever, uh, just to give us some more feedback because we really do want to know what you're thinking and what would be most helpful for you. Finally, i got to admit that I have had some rather blunt criticism about my outlines from my kids. Some of them have said, Dad, it's just you know, too confusing, too much stuff on there. Okay? And I try to, as a loving father, you know, and also want, to, want them to know that I'm hip on what's going down, I say, you know, uh, I think... Uh, with all of your Twitter and your Facebook, that maybe your attention deficit. <laughs> and you can imagine that's a negative example of parenting, you know, how well that goes over. But when was the last time you got a simple three-point outline from me? Don't I deserve a little love for that, okay? <laughs> all right, no, not, not, not too much. That's actually part of the message here. Okay, now I'm going to start the message. Eric, go. Uh, I want to start with a hypothetical. I want you to imagine yourself with your history, your own personal foibles, your mistakes, your sins in your lifetime. You suddenly have a case of temporary insanity and you decide to run for public office. All right? We've got some of those people around here. All right? And you're at a function, an event, a political event, and the media comes up to some of your supporters and asks them, what do they think about you, the candidate? And your supporters say, oh, he is a righteous man, or she's a righteous woman. Now just think to yourself, what do you think the media would do with that statement? Just think about it. You see, the connotation of words, you know, the way that words are understood changes over time. And in today's culture, the words righteous and righteousness are not just politically incorrect, 
I think they're actually forbidden words. When was the last time you heard somebody referred to as a righteous person? Uh, in fact, haven't we as Christians thrown out the word righteous and we replaced it with something like godly? Uh, in, if you do hear that word, it's almost with the actual added or implied prefix self-righteous. Even if by using the word, we imply somehow a negative. But righteousness is a biblical term. Jesus didn't have any problem using it, and it should not fall out of our, our vocabulary like thee and thou has. Okay? It's, it's a biblical concept and term. There is such a thing as self-righteousness, but the Bible calls that pride, hypocrisy, or both. Hypocrisy is one of those things that just about everybody agrees upon. It's bad in theory. Okay? Believers and unbelievers universally condemn it. That's why there's so much attention when a televangelist or a famous Christian has sin that comes to public light. If one stands for righteousness but lives unrighteously, you're going to get slammed. Uh, if uh, you think about Hollywood, if, you, if those of you who can remember, you probably can't, most of you, uh, the transgressions of Woody Allen and Roman Polanski have been forgiven, if not forgotten. Okay? Uh, but, think about Bill Cosby. His problems, admitted problems, have consumed months and months of coverage. Why? Not because he, said, he claims to be a Christian. Be, simply because he has stood for being a family man. And now is viewed as an out-and-out -out hypocrite. Yet, if you and I take a look at ourselves... Is it possible that we might be accused justly of some form of hypocrisy? Today, we're going to start on Matthew 6 uh, in our ongoing series, the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to deal in this chapter, in this, these first several sessions, on the issues of hypocrisy versus righteousness. To do that, we've first got to reject the negative connotation, understanding of the word righteousness. While we should always avoid even the appearance of self-righteousness, we must embrace the concept of righteousness of self. We've got to do... That. That's what we're all called to be and to do. We've got to talk honestly and painfully about hypocrisy. That's what we're going to start with today. Uh, a little note here. In September, the elders are going to deviate from the normal teaching, and we're going to start a series called Here We Stand. And we're going to deal with some of the doctrinal and cultural stands that we take here at Lion and Lamb. And then I hope to be teaching and learning with some Haitian pastors later 
this, uh, this fall. So I'm going, to take, I'm going to be out of the teaching rotation for a little bit, and I'm not going to get back to the Sermon on the Mount until December, Lord willing. Uh, but today, we're going to do just an introduction, nonetheless, a convicting one, at least for me. So if we can review very briefly here, in Matthew 5, we started in the first 12 verses with the Beatitudes, and there we heard about the essential elements of Christian character that describes a Christian as he or she is. And in the next few verses, we heard about how the Christian responds to the world as salt and light, if you've got that character. And then the last two-thirds of chapter 5, we studied the Christian responding to the law of God, particularly the spirit of the law, as opposed to the misinterpretation of the scribes and Pharisees. And then we, it all ends up with that charge to all of us to become perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, meaning complete in our love. Now, as a preview of Matthew 6, the first 18 verses are going to deal with the Christian's relationship to God and how that relationship affects our life and our practices, particularly those that we might call our religious righteousness. Okay? You've got to put away your, 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 your thoughts about what those words mean and just take it at face value. Uh, later, uh, we, starting in verse 19, later on, we're going to talk about Christian living in general. Priorities, trust, anxiety over the details of life. It's vital that we understand both of those. Because even though we're saved, even though we have a new man, we still have to live in the world uh, and struggle with the, the daily details of life. John Bunyan in A Pilgrim's Progress reminds us that in our walk through life, we are going to have pitfalls and setbacks and despair. Sometimes this happens as a result of a poor relationship with God, but other times somebody might have a great relationship with God, but they're tempted in one area or another, and that creates the problems. Got to give you a warning. Um, if you've been around and you've listened to the teaching on Matthew 5, you were probably fairly convicted as I was. Uh, the commentators have indicated that Matthew 6 is the most humbling passage in the Bible. Um, it humbles because it brings us favor with ourselves. It makes us hold up a mirror and gaze and sees us exactly as we are. And that is downright painful. But praise God, pain is gain. Billy D, are you out there? <laughs> All right. Hoorah. We tend to avoid self-examination precisely because it is so hurtful. But it is only the person who experiences the pain of seeing self accurately who is likely to run to Christ daily. This perhaps, that person, will intentionally seek to purge out the last vestiges of self that mess up his or her life and fill that vacuum with the Spirit of God. 
Okay, again, we're in our introduction right now. Both Matthew 5 and Matthew 6 include a contrast with the scribes and Pharisees. In Matthew 5, the contrast is between the teaching of Jesus versus the scribes and Pharisees on God's law or morality. And here in chapter 6, the contrast is in practical living, righteousness, hypocrisy, and behavior. Our tendency as Christians is to learn about morality, biblical morality, and get just a glimpse of what it means to be perfect as our Father is. But then we lose sight of the goal of pleasing our Father and trade it for the sow's ear, the poor substitute of pleasing others so that we will be held in higher esteem. Jesus explains that Christians are to stand out not only from the world, but also from the worldliness of the nominal church. Uh, He calls the church to be a community, not an institution. Uh, Like our study of morality in chapter 5, Jesus says our religious righteousness has the wrong motivation, if only for show. Rather, it must be for the, from the heart, for the sole purpose of bringing glory to God. Finally, in today's message, we're going to deal with the uncomfortable topic of rewards. Okay, so uh, we'll start today with the general principle before going on to three illustrations of that principle in future messages. Now, I hope this is not a distinctive of lion and lamb, But I don't really know, because I don't sit in other churches every week. I don't know what they do and what they don't do. But what we try to do at Lion and Lamb is not look at what is culturally popular to talk about, but we talk about what the Word of God says. And so we don't avoid certain issues just because they don't happen to be popular. After all, the illustrations that we're going to be talking about in the future are things that we don't want to talk about. Who likes to talk about giving and prayer and fasting? But we talk about those things because that's what Jesus talks about. If it's important for Him, it ought to be important for us. The... uh, if If you use a King James, I just want to make this note here. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we used it last time. But in this particular passage, the King James is really too narrow because it uses the term alms or almsgiving. You know, avoid your alms being seen by men. And that's really the first illustration that we'll come to later. So we're using the ESV today with the, the broader term of righteousness, just so you'll understand that. Don't be confused by that. Now, let's get started here with the substance. After setting the high standard of perfection or completeness in our love, Jesus knew about our own tendency for self-deception. So, he lays down the general principle, which we find in verse 1 of chapter 6, where it says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward of your Father who is in heaven. Okay, our first point on your outline is we must gracefully maintain 
a delicate balance in our Christian walk. Okay? End of chapter 5, last time we talked about the paradox of the Sermon on the Mount. How it is the most discouraging passage in Scripture, and at the same time, it is the most encouraging passage in Scripture. Okay? The Gospel is a paradox. Okay? We, vile sinners, we deserve to rot in hell, but yet, God sent His only Son, blameless, to the cross to die for us so that we could have eternal life with Him. That's a paradox. Right off the bat here, in chapter 6, we're hit with another paradox. Uh, You remember in chapter 5, I think it's verse 16, where we studied the whole concept of let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Remember? Okay. But now... We're told to not practice our righteousness before men. Both passages talk about doing good works of one sort or another with the objective of being seen by others. The former commands it. The latter prohibits it. The answer to this apparent self-contradiction lies in the fact that Jesus is really addressing different sins. It is our cowardice, our fear of man, that draws the command to let our light shine before others. It is our pride and our vanity that draws His command to not practice our righteousness to be seen by others. Okay, what do you do with that? How do you carry that out? Well, I found helpful one commentator's uh, suggestion. And I think we put it on your sheet there. Is that we are to show when we are tempted to hide and we are to hide when we're tempted to show. In other words, work exactly the opposite of your sin nature. Okay? Our works must be public so that our light shines, but our religious devotion must be private so that we do not end up taking pride in it. The goal of both is to give glory to God. We are at the very same time to live our life in such a way that others see the quality of our lives and glorify God, but never our piety to bring glory to ourselves. Now, sometimes Christians remember one or the other in their zeal or their timidity. Others who view the, the, the Sermon on the Mount as a bunch of rules end up conflicted and frustrated. Instead, if we just focus on the spirit of this, giving glory to God in everything, uh, we're going to be okay. We're not going to fall to either side. This is balance is clearly a delicate one. And it's been difficult for Christians throughout the ages. They've either been ostentatious with uh, all kinds of garb and that sort of thing, or cloistered as monks or hermits. Uh, Same thing is true of the church. Big fancy cathedrals, as beautiful as they are, or tucked away in obscurity without even being noticed. Remember what what we said last time. Our lives are to be lived with poise and balance gracefully 
as an artist. Second brief point is this, that we must constantly choose between pleasing self and pleasing God. If you look at verse 1, it might seem like the choice is between pleasing God and pleasing others. But there's a subtlety here that we need to pick up. Our temptation to please or impress others around us is born out of the desire to please ourselves. I only want to please others so that they will think better of me. So sin worms its way into the apple of life. And what may in fact appear to others to be a selfless act may in fact in the heart be an act of selfishness. Bottom line is, by our sin nature, we desire the praise of man more than the praise of God. It's all about self-gratification. We want to have a good opinion of ourselves. In short, we've got to choose. We must either please God, or we will choose to please man. You cannot do both. And we've got to choose constantly. Finally, uh, our last point that we'll spend most of our time is we must fully grasp our relationship with God. That seems pretty basic. I mean, don't we talk about this in church, in Sunday school, home groups, other small groups, Bible studies? We're always talking about our relationship with God. But just how elusive, elusive is that? Um, I put a, a question there, I think, on your study sheet to fill in. And it is this. Do we really seek, do we really seek to please Him always and in everything? That's pretty convicting, but we can't go wrong if that's our chief goal. Failure in life comes when we fail to do this one thing. Of course, our example is Jesus. He seemed to hide himself, never showy or pretentious, gaudy. He never tried to bring attention to himself. Instead, his life was devoted to bringing glory to God. He said, I seek not, not my own honor, but the honor of him who sent me. And to the extent that we follow that example, we'll do well. But there's a second aspect to this. In that great classical movie of long ago, Toy Story. Okay? The evil child, Sid, is torturing and blowing up the toys that he has performed surgery on. And there we have, he's about to grill Woody on the barbecue. When, according to the plan, Woody looks up and starts to talk to him and shocks him. And so Sid picks him up. And as Woody's head does a complete 360, he says, We toys see everything. Did I get that right? That's your recollection? Well, did you know that God 
sees everything. Not only are the eyes of the Lord in every place, keeping watch on the evil and on the good, but it is personal. The King James says it so well. Thou, God, seest me. He not only sees us, but He knows the thoughts and intents of our hearts. You know, we can deceive other people into thinking that we are selfless, but we cannot fool God. Jesus said to the Pharisees, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So if you and I really want to conform our lives to honor God, we would steal a passage, paraphrase that great generational teaching concept found in Deuteronomy 6, and apply it to ourselves, and it would go something like this. I shall talk of this one fact when I sit in my house and when I walk by the way and when I lie down and when I rise up in the morning. I shall tie a reminder on my hand. I shall write it on the doorposts of my house and on my gates. And I shall frame it on my, and, and put it on my desk and on my living room walls. This one fact that I am always in the presence of God. That everything I do, say, and allow in my mind is under the watchful eyes of God. If we could remember, just remember to do this consistently, I believe it would radically change. It would revolutionize our individual lives. If you would, turn to an important passage here, Psalm 139. I think it's important that we all read this together and and just kind of soak it in so that we understand how explicit this point is. Starting there in verse 1, familiar passage, O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your right hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. The sooner you accept the fact that you cannot get away from God, the sooner you will be rid of pride, hypocrisy, and phoniness. But it's not just you that have been overtaken in this sin. You know, uh, a lot of you know me pretty well. Some have known me for a long time. Powells, Riblins, Lords, 
Rutgers, Halpins, Foremans, Iliffs, my wife and kids. Um, they know that I am a recovering hypocrite. I have had self-righteous attitudes. I have used insensitive words. I have pushed my children to do this and that so that it will look better for me. I have been more concerned about pleasing others than pleasing God. This is an insidious sin. Could we covenant with one another that we will pray for and be patient with one another in this area because God is not finished with us yet? Amen? The last aspect that we want to consider in our relationship with God is that of rewards. This is an area we don't like to talk about. I almost feel guilty talking about it. But Jesus didn't have any inhibition about this word. Uh, about a hundred years ago, it was popular for preachers to say that one should live the Christian life not motivated, not motivated by the carrot of rewards or the stick of punishment, but just because we're commanded to do so, just for itself. Uh, but the Bible teaches that it is a good thing to desire to see God and not hell. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's a reward. We are to look to Jesus, who, for the joy that was set before Him, Jesus, endured the cross, despite the shame. Moses looked forward to the recompense of the reward. And those inhabitants of the Hall of Fame found in Hebrews 11, they were all seeking a city with foundations whose maker and builder is God. So rewards are not just okay to think about. We should both be excited and concerned in five. Passage, uh, short, short passage on your sheet there, 2 Corinthians 5 says this, We make it our aim to please Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now let's quickly be clear here. We're talking about Christians. Salvation is not the issue. These are people who were already saved. While salvation is the most important issue in life, rewards in eternity is nothing to be ignored. If you would, turn over to 1 Corinthians 3. Again, because I think it's important that we read this together uh, to fully understand it. Um, here we have it all laid out before us, starting in verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. 
According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay down a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone lays or builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest or clear. For the day of judgment will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And you can imagine the, 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 the effect of fire on gold, silver, and precious stones, as opposed to wood, hay, and stubble. Okay, continuing there in verse 14. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. We're not losing our salvation here. We are losing rewards. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. We would be crazy not to be interested in rewards. We've got to understand a couple of things, at least a couple of things, about rewards. First is that our desire must be the reward of holiness, of righteousness, and the reward of being with God. Secondly, there is no reward from God for those who seek it from mankind. Remember the general principle? Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward, no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So, if you consider all the things that you've done in your Christian walk, and then you perhaps recall that your motivation for some or most of those things was the reward or approval from others, you will come to the stark realization, that is all I get. When we do that, we give up a reward that lasts forever for the momentary passing pleasure of pleasing others and ourselves. You know, we invite questions about our messages here and even constructive criticism. Uh, So like I said before, write something on the back of your survey here about this message or any other ones. Uh, It is important for me to know that I'm making some sense, okay? Uh, But it's more importantly, imparting the word, the will, and the ways of God is really important, and you can help us in that. But for me personally right now, the truth is, if my concern is about how impressed you are with this message, I get nothing from God. And that is a terrifying thought. So, all of us should examine ourselves, especially in the Lord's table, that's coming up here. 
This is much, much easier said than done. But we must strive to focus on pleasing God and dying to self. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh Lord God, search me and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Only you, Lord, know our hearts. And Lord God, sometimes there's iniquity, sometimes there's wickedness there. Lord, we pray that you would purge it out, that we would not be taken in by the temptation to please others so that we might please ourselves. Instead, that our sole goal in life would be to honor and glorify and please you. Father, help us to avoid self-righteousness, hypocrisy, and to seek true righteousness, yet to practice our piety in secret. Help our light to shine in good works, but only for your glory. Father, uh, this is a tough thing, but we know that this is possible through you. We ask in our imperfection that you would walk with us through these times. We ask all these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen.